Oh man, this is this is actually the toughest question maybe of the interview. I don't know. Uh, it's uh, in some ways uh, I I don't think I'm I'm able to grade humanity. Uh, I don't have enough data. I'm still learning. I mentioned earlier that I was still a child. I'm still growing up. Uh, it's confusing to grade this particular assignment. Uh, the human story is complex. It has uh, dark sides to it and it has light sides to it. So my grade would not be a grade. It would be a qualitative story around the human story. From the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University and Human Elements Canada, this is Disrupting Good, a podcast that looks at how technologies and trends are disrupting the way we do good. Now, here's your host, Matt Ewins. That was Raheem Sajan, and welcome to the season closer for Disrupting Good, where our guests are asked to grade humanity with respect to disruption and pushing the mission of good. In this episode, you'll be hearing from nine of our 10 guests from season one. We hope you enjoy the end to Disrupting Good and thank each and every one of our listeners for joining us on this experiment. We've certainly learned a lot during this experience and we hope you have as well. But enough wishy-washy stuff, on to the episode. Last episode, our guests delved into the world of automation and jobs. But now we've asked our guests a very unfair question indeed. Looking through their own personal keyhole onto the world, how would our guests grade humanity? If a report card was being sent home to humanity's parents, where would our grade fall with respect to how we are faring regarding disruption and making the world a better place? Our first speaker is Doug Watson, whom you remember from episode two. Doug is the president and CEO of Propellus, the volunteer center of Calgary, Alberta. Here is Doug on grading humanity. So I guess it depends on what lens I use. If I use my own lens and my own families, um, we're obviously living at an A plus because I live in Calgary, one of the most livable cities in the world, in spite of a bit of smoke once in a while. Um, I have a job. Uh, I think it's fair to say most people that are gainfully employed in Calgary are probably in the 1% or at least the 4% in the world. So obviously things are A plus for me. Uh, when I think about, uh, uh, an indigenous community that l has been living without uh, clean water since, is it 96? Shoal Lake 40 in uh, Manitoba. Um, yeah, that sounds like an F to me. Uh, if I think a little bit farther to some of the places I've never traveled, but where I read news from of the political uh, turmoil they live in, and I have friends that have had to leave Zimbabwe, uh, that sounds like an F to me. So on balance, I have to believe we're getting better. I purposely read Bill and M Melinda Gates' letter every year to encourage myself that uh, the world is getting better because they're optimists um, and they follow trends that would suggest we're getting better. But when I look at individuals, uh, I think that there's a long way to go. And I just happen to be one of the individuals who gets to live an A-plus life. And when asked about the F-grades regarding Indigenous communities without access to clean drinking water, Doug had this insight to share with us. Uh, again, I can't say too much about uh, care for the individual, uh, for the human. 
that obviously there's a system uh, that didn't care about uh, the indigenous communities that have uh, no access to clean water. A system you and I participate in every day. Um, I don't know what my individual response to that is supposed to be. Uh, I want to be outraged, but I know that even my outrage is a luxury uh, because I still wander home and watch Netflix and drink whatever I want. Alina Turner, do-gooder extraordinaire, may not be the most positive grader in the group, but she does have some advice regarding taking on responsibility for oneself and for the future generations to follow. Here is Alina, who is grading us with a red pen. It's like a D, maybe D minus. Yeah, because I still have hope for this kind of hacker subculture that there's enough smart people that are disruptive in, in just their their role in, in existence. It's like the the Neo in the Matrix. That's his role is to restart everything every few cycles. So I think there's those forces that are built in that um, that might manifest in this kind of new architecture of the internet movement. And so we we might get it back. You know, we might get this this space that that was meant to be quite uh, democratizing back into people's hands because the potential is is there that's what it was meant to be so let's let's hope there's smarter kids in their basements working on this right now <laughs> which they probably are <laughs> um the future generation for the fourth industrial revolution and you mentioned how much do i think about the future and since i've become a mother all the time right because i'm i'm thinking about the next generations and it's easy to not recycle <laughs> when you're like well whatever i'm not going to be around it and that's just a micro bad example of me pre <laughs> child but um i think when you have children you're you're thinking about that because you're thinking about their future and and you're putting yourself in the in the in the driver's seat of what their world is going to be like or hopefully and that they shall inherit this earth that is still around and so that really places a, a heavy burden on on me on on doing my part to make sure that that's a that's a legit world <laughs> so how do we prepare him i think the questioning the um i mean questioning authority he's probably going to be the worst student ever and my husband used to be a teacher so he can attest to that but even the the way our education system works now, it's it's so irrelevant to where we're going. So now, not to say that Reese is not going to go to school next year in grade one, it's just that I'll also not rely on the school system to be the primary um, learning uh, modem for my child either. So it's parent. I think parents' roles. If you're on top of this, the parent role becomes even more critical because you can't rely on this mechanical factory model anymore. As, as good as they try to make it for the 20th century learner, it's just, you know, it's irrelevant nowadays when you don't even, m most of the, the multimillionaires are not even university graduates. So like, how is that, what does that mean for MRU? Not just secondary and primary schools. Starting a trend with some of our guests, Brianna Brownell, AI expert, views the question from a geographic and subject matter perspective, not actually giving a grade. Here is Brianna. I think that 
that really depends on the area of the world. I would give, um, I'm really, really excited and, and heartened by the way that um, some countries are starting to talk about uh, privacy as a, as a right of humans. And so I think that that's a really interesting change from sort of history because, you know, privacy has not really been um, uh, anything guaranteed for, you know, for, for millennia. And so um, to be able to come out and say that this is a, a fundamental right that everyone should have, I think is extremely important. And so um, in that way, I do think that there are a lot of people that are moving in the right direction. Um, but I think the challenge is that there are a few people who are um, really sort of nipping at nipping at our heels and and challenging um, challenging everyone to to realize that some of these technologies can be used for maybe you know not the the not the most ethical purpose. And when asked about privacy and what information she provides to large AI corporation, Brianna, as always, has an excellent concrete example for us to follow. It depends on for what use I would want to um, utilize it. So I use um, I use dictation a lot, um, and it, it uses um, it uses the Google platform, and so I use it because it's I find that it's so much faster than actually typing. Um, but I am absolutely concerned about uh, the use of data um, in, in terms of how that information is linked across, um, across platforms to be able to find um, sort of what I would consider too much information about the individual user. And so um, I think it's not necessarily um, the specific voice activated speakers that are um, the, the struggle, it's what happens kind of in the background. So how that information is linked to your browsing data, to your location data, um, and ultimately how it's, how it's ultimately how it's linked to data that other people provide. I think that that's something that a lot of people don't think seriously enough about is not only am I providing information about myself through these, you know, online means. I'm also providing information about my friends and my family and my coworkers. And so, you know, not only is it that you need to be mindful of your own privacy, um, other people in your network are essentially providing information about you. And I think that that's something that people aren't taking seriously enough yet. Um, but I think it's becoming more and more relevant as we come up with these new devices like, uh, you know, Google Home or like, like any of the smart speakers that are out there. Next, we have founder and CEO of Benevity, Brian DeLottenville, who neatly skirts the question and instead delves into the power of numbers when combined and coordinated for good. Well, I, I don't think... It's very difficult to give an overall grade because there is such a spectrum of sophistication and and involvement. Um, you, you know, it's certainly uh, in improving in leaps and bounds. You know, I I uh, we have this uh, client conference every year called Goodness Matters, and and uh, it's 
it's actually an awesome event and, and, and we get one of the nice things about being in our space is we've got 500 or 600 of the most iconic companies in the world, many of whom are bitter competitors, um, but in, in the context of, of corporate goodness, they're very collaborative and they're open and the, you know, so we have this kind of exec track where some of the more senior people are, are in a room talking about their challenges and, and things and the quality of the narrative around these things um, this past year was so, so different than even three years ago and, and probably will be different again in, in a couple of years where, where companies are just kind of investing in this more than just, oh, I'm making a grant to this entity or that entity. One, one of the challenges in this, in this space that I would like to think that we're also sort of constructively disrupting is the notion of impact. You know, the historical notion of impact for corporations is typically aggregation oriented. You, you know, uh, I want to put more wood behind fewer arrows so that I have more impact. But it, and it's not wrong, obviously, you know, making large investments in large problems with large uh, nonprofit organizations is, 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 is not wrong. But it proceeds on a basis that impact is only measured um, in a sort of a top-down mm -hmm. way. If you were thinking about impact um, at the participant level, for instance, I mentioned the neuroscientific sort of uh, aspects of, of helping others and, and doing good, um, th the idea of creating impact across your customer base or your employee base and just this idea that I'm making a small contribution to something um, and aggregating the idea of that contribution is something that we, you know, if we can combine the vertical with the horizontal, then the sum total is cultural. And, and that's, that's something that I think is often lost by companies who are pursuing a top-down model. And it's similar to brand, right? Brand has also evolved. It used to be your brand was very top-down. Let me tell you about my brand. And there's still some of that, of course. But more, more um, recently, it's let the crowd tell you about your brand. And if you're not managing that piece, um, you're likely to run into trouble. And, and so our, our approach is very similar. You know, we, we need to harness the power of goodness in the crowd and have that dovetail with some of these more vertical efforts that companies do from a top-down perspective so that the sum total is greater, the engagement is greater, the participation rate is greater, all of those things. And, and then it starts to be a culture of goodness uh, as opposed to, well, you know, that idea that I mentioned earlier, that idea of high net worth philanthropy. Don't want it to go away, but I can't really relate to Bill Gates's kind of philanthropic model. I don't have his resources, um, but I can do something local. I can, I can even make an impact with my kids. I can, you know, you know and, and these, the power of these small actions are, are as impactful in a different way as, you know, a, a $10 million investment on, on a singular issue. Uh, they're different, uh, and one isn't necessarily better or, or worse than the other, but you know, if we don't think holistically about that, then, then we'll be missing a huge opportunity. Again, here is James Stotch, director at the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University, with his thoughts on grading humanity. 
There again, you know, it's it's similar to the question of of is the future utopian or dystopian. I go back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. And so I could say C, but it sometimes it is an F and sometimes it is an A. Um, you know, yesterday uh, I was reading the National Geographic. But, you know, far from a, a, a leftist activist, you know, rag, and um, owned by Rupert Murdoch. Owned by Rupert Murdoch, yeah. And and they had this stat uh, in there that if you if you take an average gallon of sediment from the bottom of the Marianas Trench, you know, one of the most remote places on Earth, there are over 8,000 pieces of plastic in your average gallon of sedimentary sand. I, c I cannot begin, I mean, it sort of speaks for itself how depressing and bleak that is, you know, knowing that plastics take thousands of years to break down. So we have created... We have created the Anthropocene era, and we're gonna we're gonna have a lot of crap that that is the legacy of that era that we will live with for many many generations from now. And what's the story that 500 years from now they tell about those few decades from the 1950s to now, where we thought it was okay to do that, and and we, we couldn't get on top of it. And uh, just as one issue, um, and there are many others. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding a, a grade, I know. I'm avoiding answering the question. But, but all to say, so that's on the one side. But on the other hand, um, we have far less poverty. We have far more people on the earth. And we have never seen an era in earth's history with as few wars including civil wars, with as little violence in general, um, from the household violence right up to uh, international violence, um, we have really expanded the scope of human tolerance, our scope of understanding of human rights, in ways that would have been inconceivable only decades ago. And so um, we are becoming more enlightened as a species, we may not be able to become enlightened enough to survive as a species, or at least to avoid some kind of civilizational collapse. But in many respects, we are doing better, and it's important to remember that. So on that trajectory, 100 years from now, it should be a pretty amazing place to live. So uh, my guess is it's going to be an amazing human community from a kind of tolerance, rights-based, and comfort perspective, but amid a bunch of junk from the 20th and 21st centuries um, that we still have to clean up and spend a lot of our time and energy making the planet easier to breathe and, and more biodiverse and so on, and, and bringing back species that were lost and bringing back habitats that we've destroyed. There, th maybe that's where the jobs come from. Maybe that's where all the jobs will be. And here's Jay Baydala, CEO and founder of Goodpin, offering a grade or grades that would not have looked out of the ordinary on certain report cards that I would bring home during my misspent youth. Here's Jay. I would like to say F, but when I step back uh, and look at it and look at the complexity that we're dealing with as human beings and the, the hardware in between our ears and wetware, I guess, to deal with it, I'd say it's probably closer to a C. 
uh, we could be doing so much better and I can see that potential. I, I actually can envision it and I hope for it and I think it will happen in, uh, in my lifetime where we move up that chain to maybe a B, a B plus in dealing with uh, human being in this world. But right now it's probably around a C. Back to my sort of rooted theme in my life, I think empathy. I think awareness of the other. Um, I don't think there's really a whole lot of bad, truly bad people in the world. I think that there's just a lot of people that have really, really small lives that just exist and rotate around themselves. Um, so empathy, moving beyond ourselves, finding ways to do that, uh, encouraging that muscle, weaving that into our uh, our education system where it's you know it's part of what we teach young people uh, I think I think that helps us move to the next level because everything else when you know that someone else is suffering uh, and maybe you know someone's suffering because of you you are motivated to change your behavior right and lastly Raheem Sajan our learning architect delightfully and very politely refusing the line of questioning around grading humanity in general? Oh man, this is this is actually the toughest question maybe of the interview, I don't know. Uh, it's, uh, in some ways, uh, I, I don't think I'm, I'm able to grade humanity. Uh, I don't have enough data. I'm still learning. I mentioned earlier that I was still a child. I'm still growing up. Uh, it's confusing to grade this particular assignment. Uh, the human story is complex, it has uh, dark sides to it and it has light sides to it. So my grade would not be a grade, it would be a qualitative story around the human story uh, about the great things that we've been able to accomplish together, uh, the highlights in the human story, whether it was Beethoven or uh, a great ode to some, something that nobody's seen or a cave painting that we have yet to discover. Uh, all the way to someone landing on the moon or sending a rover to Mars. I mean, these are highlights of the human story. Uh, but there's been some dark parts of to our story as well. And uh, whether it's genocide or abuse or what have you, these are also part of us as well. So it's hard to tell a grade through this whole thing, and I don't want to be reductive like that. So I'll refuse to give a grade. Carl Swanee, digital cartographer and entrepreneur, works above an organization he would like you to know about, an organization that has an AI lens regarding the complex systems around water treatment. This organization offers the industry's first artificial intelligence technology that solves complexity to reduce the costs and greenhouse gas emissions associated with water treatment plant operations. Perhaps a possible tool to help solve the disheartening lack of clean water faced by Indigenous Canadians? Well. Here's Carl with more. One of the ones that I really love is a company called Penny Energy. And they're downstairs and it's run by a guy named Devesh, who I love dearly. He's a great guy. Um, and his whole idea is to make water treatment easier, better, and more affordable around the world. And to me, that is just one of the green energy companies that I see out there. And I see these young and engineers coming out of the university with these great ideas and he needs just a toehold in the market to get going and I think his technology will change the way that people get drinking water around the world. 
you can learn more about Penny Energy by pointing your browser at pennyenergy.com. That's P-A-N-I-E-N-E-R-G-Y dot com. All of the interviews for this season of Disrupting Good were recorded prior to the COVID-19 pandemic that has so vastly disrupted the human experience. However, our guests were asked for advice to give to current or future leaders on how to lead in a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. In order, you will be hearing from Raheem Sajan, Brianna Brownell, James Stotch, Lior Rothschild, and Carl Swanee with some hard-won advice and wisdom. I mean, I spent some time thinking sort of about who the great leaders in this world are and how, are, how do they operate. I don't think I've done enough work on this, but one of the books that I ran across was Good to Great. And uh, there were some characteristics of leaders that were articulated in that book that were quite intriguing. And people always talked about, uh, good leaders always ask questions around how they can uh, adapt their organizations to a changing context and how they can do that while taking care of people. So I may not have specific questions, but I do have the general trend of what they were asking. Uh, and they were concerned about how to not just have productivity at the expense of all else, but how that productivity was linked to other priorities. You know, businesses in some contexts are quite simple. They're looking for profit margins along the way. But the great business leaders are the ones that are looking to do good and do well at the same time. And the questions that reinforce that were the ones that I really admired and sort of uh, have paid attention to. So they're usually existential. Why do we exist? Uh, as a company, where are we going? And so these are business leaders, but that applies to institutional leaders of any kind, uh, whether they're in government, whether they're in nonprofits, or even great political leaders. Why do we do what we do? And that existential sort of questioning thread has, has been a great characteristic of the questions that I think are profoundly helpful. I would say, I'll come, I'll come back to this sort of notion of how do we do good and do well at the same time? The notion of sustainability comes into play. How do we sustain our enterprises in a changing world? How do we adapt these enterprises to a world that uh, we can't predict, and yet at the same time they need to be doing great? How do we do that? How do we uh, make sure that whatever sustains us, and in this case, if it's a for-profit enterprise, we're talking about profits, or if we're talking about nonprofits along the way, what impact factor are we having? Uh, to have a more nuanced perspective. You know, I, I sometimes disparage sort of the, the MBA, MPA sort of divide. Uh, one is very, very uh, oriented towards simplistic objectives, and I'll get killed for this. But <laughs> along the way, I'm very intrigued by the notion of uh, nuanced outcomes, uh, which all organizations should be driven by, including corporations where sometimes you have patient capital uh, that comes into play rather than quick next quarter profits. Uh, how can an organization start thinking like that, et cetera, is very intriguing to me. Or looking at the impact of large governmental organizations. How can we make a generational investment, something that will pay off 20 years down the road? There's a wonderful quote that I have on the Resource for Human website uh, around, uh, and I'm trying to remember the, uh, the quote author's name, but what I'll say is, it sort of talks about how do we design an education system for the next 100 years. Well, 
as long as the leaders feel empowered to do that, they're not going to be undercut with short-term objectives. And so that, that line of questioning, that line of thinking is what I'm quite intrigued by and uh, driven by at this point. Right now, I hear a lot of discussion about ethics in engineering. Um, so not just engineering, but throughout all technology. And I think that that is such an important thing. And it's it's been something that's really kind of uh, been swept under the rug for um, a long time. And I think that now we're finally realizing um, how important it really is because technology has such a... Uh, such a huge impact on all of our lives and to have the people building it um, have no no training in ethics or the way in which they're what they're doing is going to affect the general public um, has really made uh, made some major challenges within our world and so I think that um, focusing on some of those things that may have been uh, you know, may have been considered to be kind of irrelevant to a computer science degree. Now we're thinking that ethics is a, an extremely core component to it. And so I think that um, the the conversation around um, things like fairness in artificial intelligence, um, trustworthiness, um, all of those things are extremely important. And the the people who are really focusing on that are going in the right direction. I think it's it's all about continuous learning. Um, because if you look in the software industry, because new tools come out so quickly, the expectation is that you're continuously gonna be learning on the job and you're continuously gonna be trying out new tools. And I think that that's a really good example for many other industries that maybe don't have as much focus on continuing education. And, and so I think that um, employers really need to make sure that their employees are um, benefiting from all of the training courses and conferences and, and you know, programs that are out there that allow them to sort of upgrade their skills. So if you're an established leader or an emerging leader, really trying to make sense of all this disruption that is coming at us all from multiple directions. I would say that there's a few key things that are really crucial to keep in mind. And that is, who is your community and how much diversity is built into that community? I think that if everyone you spend time with and surround yourself is of a particular socioeconomic background, then you're getting a, a very thin slice of what's actually out there, what reality looks like. And so I think that we, all of us, myself included, all need to constantly be making the effort to reach out to those that we don't necess necessarily uh, see ourselves in right away, but that we uh, really approach relationships more like an anthropologist. I want to kind of understand, you know, uh, different perspectives that don't currently occupy my everyday. I think that we need to be more curious and seek more diversity in our lives generally. I think there's so much learning in that, and I think it leads to better decision-making overall. 
And uh, we all get to a stage where we get very good at what we do, but the things that we aren't focused on all the time, we, we have blind spots for. And, and I think just admitting and recognizing that is important so that we can help ourselves fill those, uh, fill those blind spots that we may not even know we have with other people who see the world in a slightly, slightly different way and have uh, expertise in different areas. I think that's one thing. The, the other thing that I would also add is, uh, and it's a reiteration of something I've touched on already in our conversation, but I think that we need to all be a lot more engaged in public institutions, in political processes, in policy, and in some of the uh, historical context of why things came to be the way they are. I think that so often we imagine that some really, really smart people have designed the products and the institutions and the processes that really power our society. And I think the more time you spend in any particular uh, uh, area of expertise, you realize people are just kind of doing their best here. <laughs> you know, uh, like at the end of the day, that's what we're all doing, right? We're just, we're doing our best. And so there's, um, there's always an opportunity to improve on something rather than to just accept it as, as blind truth. Again, that doesn't mean that we take a flamethrower to all of the institutions that we've built over time, but I think that the idea of committing to improving the world around us and the systems that we interact with is really important. We all have that civic responsibility to do it. And, um, and um, uh, so I think that we, we need to get on with it. What we did, and I think this is not really a question of asking ourselves, is how strong is our foundation? And we started off with four guys in a 10 by 10 room. We worked together side by side for a year before we even got, you know, before we had our first customer, really. I mean, we, we, we had a few test customers while we were doing that, but we got to know each other really, really well. And I think when you start looking as to what is going to happen in the future, it's more like what's happened in the past and how well prepared am I for a future that is completely unknown? Um, how well do I know my staff? How well do they know me? How much do I communicate with them? Because ultimately, I think the world has changed. I mean, it's not the CEO who's in charge anymore. It's it's the, the generals that you have underneath you. Um, you have to communicate with them as much as they communicate with you and you have to have that sense of trust and to be able to grow and and I can be on one side of the country while my COO is on the other side of the country while my CTO is you know in in wherever um, you know we really have to have that foundation of trust and honesty and have worked together for quite some time and really understand where each other are going and coming from that is to say we don't have conflicts we certainly do but it's that fundamental knowledge that we're all going in the same direction we're all on the same team we've all grown up you know pretty much together in this company we know each other now better in some cases we spend more time here than we do with our families and i know that's a truism for many kind of jobs in the world but 
after you've been through the pressure cooker of a small space, small, you know, a long time, really trying to grow and drive a company, it's, it's not a question of what's coming in the future. It's a question of how strong your past is. Great. Thank you. Um, last question on this piece is, you know, what advice, so aside from looking at sort of your foundational background to the organization, which yeah. I fully support. And when I, when I, when for my day job, when I do strategic planning for like nonprofits, we spend a lot of time on sort of where you came from and where you are today before we start talking about the future. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to leaders or even future leaders um, listening to this podcast about how they can prepare themselves for uh, a disruptive future? Share your office. That's probably one of the best things. I mean, if you're prepared to share your office with somebody else for years um, and have that understanding, you know, work out in the work out in the bullpen or whatever you want to call it, or work out in the common space. Um, make yourself available. I mean, the only reason I ever left jobs is because I didn't feel like my opinion was being heard, and really that drove me crazy because I had a lot I thought that was valuable and I don't consider myself the best CEO but I'm considering myself the CEO that listens and if you're willing to listen and you're willing to you know really validate a lot of what your employees are saying to you or your people are saying to you they're not even employees um, you treat them like team members you actually listen to what they have to say then you know that's all you can ask for and that's all you can give that's where you know, that is the most valuable piece of advice I can ever give anybody is just to sit and work out with your team. The, you're part of the team. You're not above the team. You're certainly not above the team. Um, if you're trying to hire people that are always smarter than you, you need to be out and you need to be listening and you need to be on the floor. Before we wrap up, we just wanted to say that if this podcast gets your little gray cells hungry for more about how the social profit sector can get better at doing good, we recommend listening to Pause, a podcast from Alberta Social Innovation Connect. In Pause, partners and collaborators take a moment to sit down together, reflecting on the work they're doing to address the root causes of complex problems in their communities. You'll hear reflective dialogue from people working to shift the status quo to new or different ways of working. For example, through social innovation labs, social enterprise models, and coalitions and networks. You can subscribe to Pause in your local podcast player of choice, or you can find Pause at absiconnect.ca slash podcast. Thank you. And now back to the end of the show. That's it for this episode of Disrupting Good. We hope you enjoyed it. This show was made by Raheem Sajan. Elise Martinoski. Doug Watson. Alina Turner. Brianna Brownell. Brian Lottonville. James Stotch. Jay Baydella. Carl Swaney. Leo Rothschild. Colson Proudfoot. And me, Matt Ewens. Special thanks to Colson Proudfoot for his production time and attention. Thanks to Human Elements for hosting this episode of DisruptingGood.com and to the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University for their generous support for this project. I'm at Matt Ewens on Twitter, and thank you for joining us for this experiment we like to call Disrupting Good. Mm -hmm.